Hi friends, my name is Paige and I'm the Creative Arts Manager at Grace Church Barberton. Welcome to our Sunday service podcast. We are so glad that you are listening. This is the live recording of our Sunday message and we hope you are encouraged and challenged by what you hear. Let's jump into Who Do You Say I Am? my story. I, I did not grow up in Ohio. I grew up in Indiana. And I remember moving from Indiana to Ohio was a, a real shock to me. I'm a little bit of an introvert. I, I have a trouble making friends sometimes. And in particular, when I was going from middle school to high school, this is just a weird transition. You're just in a weird phase, right? I just remember thinking, what in the world am I going to do? And I remember we moved three weeks before the school year started, okay? So I didn't know anybody. I just left all my friends. And I really didn't spend any summer uh, around anybody that I knew or to get to know anybody. I remember jumping into the first day of school. And I remember going, and I remember walking through Norton High School doors and just thinking the whole time, what are people thinking of me? Who, who do people think I am? What are they going to say about me, right? All of those things ran through my mind because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know what to, to look forward to. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know what was going on. And I remember I sat down in my first period class, and it was like some typing computer class, right? All of that stuff was taking place. And I sat down in front of a computer, and there was a girl that came up to me. And I didn't know her, right? I didn't know what, what group she was in. I didn't know who her friends were. I didn't know anything about her. She didn't go to the church, any of that. And she looked at me and she said this, hey, aren't you the new pastor's kid in town? And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> who do people think I am? They think I'm just the new pastor's kid in town, right? And for that day, I thought, wow, that's going to be the legacy I leave at Norton High School. This is what people know me as. This is what it's going to carry. Luckily, right, that's not just what people thought of me by the end of high school, right, and all the things. But you know this. You walk into a room. You walk into a setting. You walk into a place. You will, who do they think I am? What are people thinking about me? What would they say about me? Who do they think I am? My argument in the midst of this series is, I wonder if Jesus thought the same thing. I wonder if Jesus thought the same thing, maybe for different reasons than you and I think through it. We're in the midst of a series, or just starting a series, that we're calling, Who Do You Say I Am? And in this series, we want to look at Jesus very intently. And we want to look at him very intently and say, Who does he say he is, and how does that reflect in who I say he is? There's a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. He would say this, always the most revealing thing about the church, right, which we believe are the people, those who are following Jesus, always the most revealing thing about followers of Christ is their idea of God or their idea of Jesus, right? Our goal in this series is to do this. We are going to just take a step back, a 30,000-foot view, and in the midst of three distinct chapters in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to take a look at who does Jesus say he is and compare that to what we would believe about Jesus or who we would say Jesus is. And we're coming out of a passage, Luke 9, where Jesus has this conversation with his disciples Let's read it, and then we're going to jump into just kind of the beginnings of where we're going to go today and the rest of the series. Luke 9, Jesus has this personal conversation with his disciples. 
And I love how Luke 9 starts because I don't think this conversation was necessarily planned. I think that the disciples ran into a moment with Jesus, and Jesus took advantage of it. Luke 9, this is what Luke writes in Jesus' interaction with his disciples. Once when Jesus was praying in private, right, which I assume meant him alone, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am, right? There's other translations that talk about as the disciples kind of came in and started this conversation with Jesus. I think they came in, they want to interact with Jesus, they want to know more of what Jesus is doing, and Jesus takes this opportunity to ask them a really profound question. Maybe a question that they didn't see coming. He says, who do the crowd say I am? Who do they say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. All right, Jesus was praying and the disciples kind of run in, start this conversation with Jesus. Jesus starts to ask them questions. Back to back, he asked them. And do you notice that the same question, but directed to two different audiences? Who do they say I am? And who do you say I am? Who do they say I am, and who do you say I am? And I started to ask the question as I was processing this, why? Why? Why is Jesus asking this question? Why is this even a question that you and I should wrestle with? Is Jesus self-absorbed, right? Is he like you and me? And I walk around, I'm like, I wonder what people are thinking, because I'm so self-absorbed with myself, I'm fearful, I'm anxious, I want to know, right? Is he, is he doing that? Is Jesus anxious about what others are thinking, right? Is Jesus, is he wondering about what popular opinion is? Is he assessing all that, right? I would say no. I actually think Jesus is asking this question because others are asking this question about him. I don't think Jesus is asking this question because he's so concerned with what are people thinking about me, but rather he is processing this question with his disciples, wondering what they believe about him and what their response is to him and what it looks like to lean into him. Not for some accomplishment. If Jesus is asking this question, not for some public acclaim, not for some accomplishment measures, not for some recognition or achievement, but I wonder if he's pursuing clarity. That in Jesus asking this question, he's pursuing clarity for the sake of his disciples. Here's the reality. This question, who do you say I am? And the question, who is Jesus and what is he all about, is not just a question for first century Jews. It's a question that gets asked all the time in our world today, it just gets asked in different ways. What is life about? What, what, what purpose or meaning do I have in life? Is there anything more? Right? People are asking about Jesus. They're asking about God all of the time. They're wondering who he is and what he's about. And I think Jesus, knowing what all is happening in his ministry, people progressively are asking, who is this man and what is he about? He leans into his disciples and says, who do they say I am? But more importantly, you're following me. Who do you say I am? Because who you say I am, who you say I am, has a distinct, distinct point on your life. 
he was providing clarity to the relationship. Have you ever been in that circumstances before where you've had to provide clarity for a relationship? I remember when me and Jess started first dating, we went on our first date, well, maybe our second date, and then I asked her to be my girlfriends, right? Then we went back, and no one knew that we were officially dating at this point. We went back to her parents' house where they were having a bonfire with a bunch of people from the church. We sat down around the bonfire, and there was a couple that was sitting next to us, and the lady looked over, and she said, so Jessica, is this your boyfriend's? And her mom is sitting next to her, not knowing that we had, you know, discussed this at Silver Creek, right? And all of a sudden, clarity had to be provided, right? She could have said, nope, this is just my friend's, right? And clarity would have been really provided at that point, right? I would have known what was going on. But she decided to say, nope, this is my boyfriend's, right? As her mom is looking on and saying, oh, things are happening here, right? And it provided clarity. I think Jesus with his disciples, I think he's sitting there and he's saying, this is what you're hearing. This is what you're seeing. This is what people's talking about. But who do you say I am? Because I want to provide clarity to the relationship in what is going on here. Because here's the reality. Who you say Jesus is, has more impact on your life than you know. Who you say Jesus is directs your actions and your behaviors and your words and how you're going to live life and the hope you have or the hopelessness you have, the wonder you have or the non-wonder you have, the meaning and purpose you have or the non-meaning and purpose you have. Who you say Jesus is will give direction to your life and I think that he wanted to lean to his disciples uniquely in the midst of that. So today, all we're going to do is just intro this series. I'm not going to get into anything too crazy. We have six more weeks where we're going to do that. But I want you to process this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? That's all we're, we're going to get to today. This is the question I want you to sit on. And I'm actually going to give you a 30-second window to do that just in silence, right? We don't usually do that. So this is your first time, right? It's not like we do that all the time. But I want to give you time to process that. But before you do, this is what I want to say. I think it's interesting how Jesus phrases the question, who do you say I am? He doesn't say, who do you think I am? Right? That's a very passive way of engaging in the question, right? I can have a lot of thoughts about someone and never move in action towards that. I can sit and think about a lot of things but never move in action towards that. He says, who do you say I am? When he says that, I sense a very active, very active response to that question. Because who you say I am can be seen by how you live, how you work, how you play, the words you use, the actions that you have. And so what I want you to do is not answer the question in the 30-second window that I'm going to give you, which maybe you need 30 minutes or 30 hours this week to do, right? I don't want you to answer the question based off of who do you think Jesus is because Pastor Joel said it or because I read it in Scripture or I read this book. Who do you say he is according to how you live? Because I think there's a, a vast difference. What is your life Say you believe about Jesus. So I'm going to give you just 30 seconds. That's all I'm going to give you. And this question hopefully will carry with you 
for the rest of the week. I want you to answer on the note cards in front, on your phone, in your own notebook, who do you say Jesus is? In three, two, one, you can start writing. Process that. about 10 more seconds. Here's the reality. Who do you say Jesus is is a very active way of engaging that question. What does your life reveal to others about Jesus? What does that look like? What does that mean? For some of us, he's, he's just a mentor, kind of guides me through wisdom of life. Some of us, he's a spiritual guru, right? He's kind of the guy up there that kind of tells me some spiritual thoughts, and I kind of live life based off of that. He's a good teacher for some. He's a miracle worker for some. Or as Peter states, is he God's Messiah? Is he the Savior of the world? Is he the one to come to save us? The reality is this. No matter where you're at with Jesus, we all have an answer to that question, who is Jesus? For some of us, it's church experience, or maybe it's pain, it's hurt, maybe it's different things that bring that up, but no matter who you are, you have an answer to that question. And in this series, we want to look at interactions and conversations that ultimately invite us to see Jesus for who he is, and Jesus is simply beautiful. When we look at the landscape of what Luke is going to write, complex at times, simple at other times, beautiful in it all baffling in a, in a lot of ways. We just want to say, what in very simple ways, what do we see in Jesus? So I'm going to invite you to do two things today, two action points, okay? I'm going to get to the application before I get to the truth. First is grab a series guide. We have a team of volunteers that puts this together every single series, and this one you will enjoy, okay? It helps you wrestle with that question and processes biblical truth in the midst of it, okay? And so the seven weeks worth of a devotional built for you, just go to the back, and you can walk through that. And the second thing that I want you to do is this. I know it's summer. I know we're going out on boats. We're shooting off fireworks. We're barbecuing. We're chilling, all that good stuff. But would you... Would you personally engage with this series? Would you make this more than just me telling you some facts or some things from the Bible? Would you personally engage? Would you answer the hard questions regarding your life and who you believe Jesus is and what your life reveals in that? Because I think Jesus wants to do something in and, in and through all of us through this series that he wants to invite us into something more. Here's where we're gonna go today, okay? The rest of the time, this is what I wanna do. I want to just start us on a journey in Luke 7. So if you want to start there in your Bibles, Bible app, Luke 7 is where we're going to be. Luke 7, verse 1. I just 
basic, basic, basic want to invite us to respond to Jesus through this series. I'm not going to go too deep into this series. I'm not going to, I'm going to scratch the surface. It's going to feel very introductory today. And I want you to come back next week and the weeks after. Because what we're going to do today is this. We may not look as much at who is Jesus as, as much as we're going to look at our response to him. Okay? The rest of the series, we're going to look at different facets of Jesus, who he is, who he shares with us that he is. Today, I want to set us up. Where is our heart in this conversation and how do we lean into that? Luke 7 gives us that. Luke 7 starts and we see this coming after Jesus's sermon on in the plain. Okay, so it's another, you got the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon in the Plain where he shares with people some pretty radical thoughts about what it means to follow him and who he is and all of those things. If you weren't with us uh, two series ago, we had a series called Follow Me. I'd invite you to take a look back at those. That was the Sermon on the Plain. Okay, we spent about seven, eight weeks in that chapter, in those chapters. Today, we're going to launch into Luke 7, which comes right after Luke 6 and the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus finishes his teaching. We see this. Jesus enters into the town that he's been staying in, Capernaum. Okay, so he kind of is off, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's doing all this stuff, and he comes back to the town where he is staying and kind of localizing his ministry. And this is what Luke writes, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, okay? So he's got done preaching, now he's back in Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to, to him, asking him to come and heal his servants. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Here's, here's what we see in the midst of this passage. We're going to talk about a centurion, Jewish elders, and a plea. Because here's the reality, Okay. Those terms or those titles may not mean much in our day and age, but they meant a lot in the first century when Jesus walked on the earth. A centurion was not just some random guy. Actually, he was a Roman commander. It's a Roman commander that kind of sat over multitudes of soldiers inside of the Roman army. Had a very high leadership kind of title and power and prestige inside of the Roman worlds. And in his authority and his power, he played that out, leading Roman soldiers. And ultimately, most Roman centurions would play that out in how they walked around everyday life. Right? It was pretty common that the Romans would throw their weight around. And if you had any power or prestige or title, right, you made sure anybody you ran into knew that. This guy was different. It's interesting. We can pick up some context clues. This Roman centurion was actually, scholars would say, very humble, likable. People were willing to be around him and even help him. The fact that he had Jewish elders willing to help him in this circumstance shows us a lot because the Jews and the Romans hated each other. So the fact that he could call and plead to the Jewish elders to go to Jesus shows us that this guy is different. There's something going on in his heart that looks different and it feels different in the environment that he is in. The second thing is this. We also see that this Roman centurion highly valued his 
servants, which would not have been the case across most Roman centurions or those in power in the Roman worlds. They would have had servants, or biblically they would have been called slaves, right? which would have looked very different than our understanding, American understanding of slaves and the history here. And ultimately, a lot of servants would have been born into that, and they would have played out whether it was a debt or whether it was family history, whatever it may be. And Roman centurions did not treat their servants well at all. They could care less about them. So the fact that this Roman centurion highly valued his servants shows us a lot about his heart. Because for many, they would have said, who cares? I'll just get another one. But for him, he wanted something to happen. He wanted to make his servant well, and he didn't know where else to go. So he sends the Jewish elders to seek help. The Jewish elders, they come into play. They're the leaders, the religious leaders of the time. I don't know who they were or kind of what sect they were in, but they were there around the Roman centurion, and they valued him enough to go seek after Jesus. And so they run after Jesus, and they make a plea with Jesus. And what I think is interesting about this plea is this. The plea was not necessarily about Jesus. It was more about the centurion. You notice that? The plea is not beckoning Jesus for who he is and what he's done. It's more about what the centurion's done. I think it's interesting. They go, the Jewish elders, and they say, because of all he's done for us, he helped us build the synagogue. He helped us do this. He loves our nation. He's a pretty good guy. You should come heal his servant and do something for him. You ever been in a situation where you had to make a plea for someone based off of things they've done? Like I've been called numerous times uh, by students, but also by adults to be a reference for them, right? You ever have someone fill out a job application, and then they have to put references, and they'll be like, Pastor Joel, can I be a reference, right? And you know this, right? You know this, and we're not going to look at people, and we're not going to name names, right? Some are easier than others to be references for, Okay? (laughs) Just leave that inside here, right? Sometimes you get a call and you're like, oh boy, okay, where do we go with this one, right? Other times you're like, it's easy, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, whatever you have to fill out, right? And almost in a way, the elders saw this as an opportunity to plea with this man that had been healing and doing some weird, wonderful things to really come to him with this resume and say, you should do this because of what he has done. You should do this because of what he has done and how he's loved us and the synagogue he's built and all the things that come with that. He's worthy to receive help because of all of the good that he has played out. And the question I came to in this is, do I do this with Jesus? Do I do this with Jesus? Listen, let that sit for a second because it carries, it carries a punch. Because when Jesus says, who do you say I am? It's not just a theory that he's trying to get us to respond to. It's not just a multiple choice he's trying to get us to respond to. What he is inviting us into is how does our life reveal what we believe about him? And sometimes I can treat Jesus just like the Jewish elders treated Jesus. 
He's kind of this miracle guy, this good teacher, this spiritual guy up in the air, this guy that's done good, and, and I come to him based off of what I've done instead of based off of who he is. And my perspective of who do you say I am is more based on my accolades and my resume than it is his. Than it is about who he is and what he's done. And I think that's fascinating. And we're going to get to it here in a minute. But I think the elders, they were making a plea based off a false assumption or a misunderstanding or not a full picture of who Jesus is. Because when I truly see who Jesus is, my response will start to trend differently. It'll become less about what I've done for myself, for others, for this world, and more based off of what he's done for me. I start to respond to him in that way. What I love is this. The centurion, right, he's still in the background of this whole story. He's chilling at home, tells some Jewish elders, and most likely he did that because Romans and Jews, they, they weren't meant to be seen together. So he's like, maybe I'll have more luck if, if the Jewish elders go and invite Jesus, he'll come and do his thing, right? But I love this. They're still out getting Jesus into centurion. He finds some buddies of his and sends some friends now. I want you to see what he shares with Jesus and the elders. This is where we see the passage go. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it, right? He's so close, though, man. What, what are you doing? Like, I read this, and I was like, is this a centurion, like, second-guessing this all? Like, what's, what is he doing? Jesus is almost there. Things would have happened. Why isn't he just letting things play out, Right? And yet there's something profound about the centurion's response. He sends friends to share this message. Don't worry about coming. Instead, say the word and it will be done. My servant will be healed. And this would have been shocking. This whole scene would have been shocking culturally. You know why? Because the Roman centurion has power and prestige and a title and worthiness according to this world and according to his nation to approach anybody and make anybody do what he wants them to do. He was in it for themselves. The fact that he would look at Jesus and say, I'm not even worthy for you to step into my home. I am not worthy for you to be near what is going on. But if you would say the word, I know that my servant will be healed, means this, that the centurion saw something different in Jesus. The centurion saw something very different, and his response tells us that. His response would have been shocking. It would have been earth-shattering. His friends would have been like, what? Why do you want us to tell him that? You're the centurion. You have all this power and this prestige. This is a Jewish teacher. 
can't let him in your home? And yet, I think he was asking a different question. I'll have you write this down, and this is where we're going to end. Am I just amazed by Jesus, or have I responded to the authority of Jesus? Am I just amazed by Jesus, or have I responded to the authority of Jesus? And that can seem like a weird question, or that can seem like, where are we going with this? Or that can seem like, what does that even mean for my life? Here's the reality. The centurion had heard Jesus and what he had been doing and all the things that, that were happening, the miracles that were taking place. There was something in the air. Jesus, at this point, he was becoming famous. People wanted to be around him. People wanted to see him. He was this amazing new teacher, this amazing miracle worker. The people that, that weren't healed, they were being healed. Things were happening. It was amazing to see. And they were wondering who this guy was. And yet, listen, many were settled with just being amazed by Jesus. And never allowing it to move them closer to him. Embracing who he wants to be in our life. Who he wants to be directing of our life. I think that the Jewish leaders, they approach Jesus based on this amazement. Right? Amazed by all the things that they had seen. Amazed by all the things that were happening they came to him saying, do this for him because of all the things he has done. And the centurion took a very different route. He humbled himself and saw who Jesus actually was. Because here's the reality, amazement is a step in the process. I'm not saying it's not. But it's not the destination. Amazement is a step in the process, but it's not a destination. Amazement is never the ending place, but only the starting point. Because amazement, as much as it is amazing to see and be profoundly awed and wondered by all the things that are happening, right? It's distanced. It's a very different story, for to use this illustration, which I was last night just beckoning God for an illustration, and it didn't come. So this is the simplest thing that I could come up with, right? It's very different. It's very different when you watch a tightrope walker walking across this ravine between two cliffs to stand at a distance and be amazed by what is going on, right? You've seen that on TV. You've seen it in stories. You've read about it. It can be amazing to watch. It's a very different story when they say, trust my authority and trust the position I have being an expert in this tightrope and hold my hand and cross with me, right? That's a very different conversation. Amen? It's a very different conversation. And I think when I read this, that's what grabbed me is the centurion, he wasn't beckoning like many others were just at the amazement of who Jesus was and what he was doing. That's very distant. Many people saw what Jesus did and then just kind of left and went home. But Jesus wants to offer us more. He wants to invite us in to follow him and see for ourselves who he truly is. And here's the reality, that word authority, it's a heavy word. 
is a very heavy word in our cultural context. Because authority, we associate the title and power and prestige. We might, even, we might even attribute it to a hard hand. Authority can carry a lot of weight and can be very, very different according to who you talk to. But I think when the centurion stated, I know what it means to have authority and tell someone go and they do it and they, they can go off and all this stuff, that what he is beckoning to is Jesus has this unique, profound, beautiful authority inside of our world and universe. And when it's attributed to Jesus, it's actually such a gracious word. The fact that you and I don't have to have authority over our own life. That you and I don't have to muster it up and save ourselves. That you and I don't have to just figure out blindly how to live life. That there is someone who is greater, more majestic, more beautiful, more wonderful, who is the king of the world, wants to lead us. And the centurion noted that. When Jesus and the word authority and, and ultimately this picture of Jesus reigning and ruling, it is with love. It is with love. It is with love and authority in love is using my place and my power for the betterment of another. Listen, authority has been skewed in our world and in our life because it's been filled with sin. Because life is that. And when we attribute it to the perfect Jesus, he uses his place and position and his power as king of the universe for the betterment of someone else, for us, to save us. And my question would be this, are you just amazed by Jesus or are you responding to the authority of Jesus moving towards him in that? Because I can just be amazed by the miracles but not really follow him. I can be amazed by his grace, but not ever follow him in that and receive it from him. I can be amazed by his promises and all the really cool things that are happening, but not follow him. I can be amazed by church or church things or different t-shirts or different music or different sermons about Jesus. And yet never actually follow him and trust in his authority over my life in a loving gracious way. What I love about Jesus is this. In the passage, you noted there was something different about this guy. I love in the passages around the Gospels when Jesus takes a step back and says, did everybody else see that? Because that's what he does in this story. Luke 7, verses 9 and 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, Right? All of a sudden, the story's kind of flipped. Jesus is like, what's going on here, right? Now, note, this is a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He, he's not supposed to, in his cultural moment, serve God. So this guy, Jesus is amazed at him, and he turns to the crowd following him. Jesus is famous. He's got people everywhere. And he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. What a powerful story, right? And I love that. Jesus makes this really interesting distinction. He says, do you know what that is? That is faith. That is faith that the centurion 
is living out of. And he says, I haven't seen anything like that in the rest of Israel, which would have been a knock on all of his people, right? The fact that he's saying, no one in Israel is approaching me this way, but this guy is, would have been shocking to those following after him. And here's the reality. This is why I think Jesus said that. He's saying, faith is not how much I can muster up. Sometimes I think, I think faith, sometimes when we talk about it, and when I talk about it, right, it's sometimes like, how much faith do I have? We, we read the Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith passage. And we're like, wow, they had so much faith. How do I get that kind of faith? And I think faith is trusting and responding to the authority of Jesus as king over the universe. I think what the centurion is doing, he's not, I did all this work. I did all this stuff. Look at how much faith I have. He is literally getting down on his knees in a, a verbal way saying, Jesus, you are this. And I'm going to respond to you in that way. And I'm going to respond to you in such a way that I don't even need you to walk into my house because I know I am unworthy, but you are so gracious and powerful, you will still heal. And I trust you in that. Jesus' authority is different. It's not some passive or aggressive authority. His authority is bathed in the reality that he is king. It's bathed in the reality that he is king. It's believing, responding to both his greatness and his grace. I think if we were to go back to Luke 9, the crowds are responding to Jesus based on their amazement in him. They're like, he's one of the prophets. He's Elijah. He's one of those really neat guys to come. He's doing all this work. He must be someone of long ago and come back from the dead. They were amazed. But do you notice Peter's response? Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, God's Messiah. He recognized in two very distinct titles, the authority, the love, the grace, the power, the truth, and the reality of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. He has not just come to do a bunch of miracles and healings and teachings for the sake of nothing. He is God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, come to save us. And when you recognize that, you're responding to something greater and bigger than just some amazement in this. When Jesus says, I've not seen such great faith, we do have to recognize this. Faith is a calculated risk. This guy... This Roman centurion interacting with Jesus this way comes with a risk, right? People start to find out, oh, you think that about the Jewish leader? Oh, you think that about him? What are you believing? What are you doing? And yet he had heard enough to put his life in front of Jesus and follow after him. Now, as we end... Just one quick application because as I was wrestling with this and wrestling with this and wrestling with this, the question came up, how in the world do I move from amazement to trusting in the authority of Jesus for my life? Having faith, and I'd write this down, it's humility. It's humility. What did this centurion respond with that 
others were not. Even the Jewish elders were not. It was humility. The centurion told Jesus, don't even worry about coming to my house. I'm unworthy. He said he was unworthy. He recognized his resume wasn't enough. And he recognized that Jesus' authority, his, his position and his place inside of this world was greater than his. And he says, I'm not even worthy, but here's what's powerful. But he said, Jesus, even from a distance, you say the words, I know my servant will be healed. You hear that? There's this beautiful grace and greatness that the centurion speaks to. This grace that I know that he is the Savior and his heart is to heal the broken. And yet, I cannot be in the same presence as him because he is so much greater. He was tapping into a spiritual authority that Jesus had being on this earth and being God in the flesh in such a beautiful way. He wasn't just amazed by what Jesus can do, but he was convinced by who he is and responded to him as such. So how do we respond as such in humility? I'll read a passage, bop through a couple things, and then we'll be done. This is not a list of top five things on how to become more humble. I looked that up. It doesn't exist, okay? I think there is a part that we play in stepping into that. But there is not this, we become more humble, and all of a sudden we attain something. But rather, as we respond to God, I think he humbles our heart. James 4 would write it like this, and we'll just go through a couple things. You adulterous people, what a great way to start that passage, right? Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. If you continue, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Here's what I would say. Humility is not thinking less of myself or more myself. It's thinking of myself less. And when ultimately I get beyond myself and I start to see Jesus for who he is, I start to respond to him in that way. And faith is not mustering up how much harder can I follow Jesus, but rather faith is responding to the grace that he's offered to me, humbling my life and following, me, following him in that. Faith is not defined by my efforts. It's defined by how uh, the humility that he offers works in my life to follow after him. So I would say this real briefly. Humility is the doorway to gift. Here's the reality James was talking about you're going after other things outside of God. You're, you're being a friend of the world. His grace is more powerful, he says, and I give my grace, my favor to those who are willing to humble themselves and see that they cannot do it on their own, see that they are, their hearts are full of sin, see that they're not their own savior and turn to me. Humility is not this earning of grace, but rather it is a doorway to accept grace and see what Jesus offers us freely. Secondly, humility is the lens to see Jesus. I love where James says, submit yourselves then to God. Literally, it's like opening our eyes to the reality that he is the reigning and ruling king of the universe and that he is the one that leads and loves and guides and he is the true one, and our lives are dictated based off of that. And then lastly, I would say this, humility is the pathway to Jesus. 
James says this, resist the devil and come near to God. Resist the devil, come near to God. It starts by humbling myself to the reality that he is king and Lord. And as he continues to foster humility, I respond as such. I will begin to see what it means to resist the devil, resist what the devil has for me and the temptation and the sin that offers me this and draw near to God. Because in that, I respond to the beauty of who he is. So as the worship team comes up, as the worship team comes up, this is my invitation to you. Because I don't think it's a top five things of how do I get to humility faster. I don't think it's a how can I muster it up more. I think it's a response. I think it's a response of our hearts when we look at Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. When I look at the good news of Jesus. My invitation, as I started at the beginning, very simply is this. Would you make this series personal? Not for the sake of redefining Jesus. Not for the sake of becoming a better Christian, but for the sake of your life, sharing, saying, proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. Because I'm not just in theory saying it. My life is living it. And so my invitation is this today. Like I said, I didn't get very far into you know, defining, biblically diving into who. We're going to get there. But would you be willing to say yes to Jesus throughout this series? Now listen, we use that terminology a lot around here. Sometimes we just equate it to a first-time decision. But would you be willing to take a series guide and say yes to Jesus, allowing him to humble our hearts to receive his grace to open up a lens and to ultimately follow him. Not just an amazement of what he can do for my life, but in who he truly is and responding to him as such. And what if we got the end of this and Jesus were to reveal to us things spiritually that you and I have never jumped into before because we just left him over here for the things that he could do for me instead of really pursue him for who he is as the savior of the world, God's Messiah, and ultimately the king of my heart. So Father, as we close today, we thank you. We thank you that you are God and we are not. Father, that even in the midst of all that is, happens over human history, you keep inviting us in. You keep inviting us to be a part of your story. You keep revealing to us who Jesus is and your spirit continues to move in that. We praise you, Father specifically, Father, 
I praise you for your patience, your faithfulness. And Peter talks about that in his second letter. We ought to be grateful for your patience, Father, because you don't want any of us to perish, but to enjoy the fruit of your salvation through Jesus. Father, would we not just be mesmerized, mesmerized by the things that you do, the things that Jesus has done, but that we would respond to who you are and live life out of that. Father, we praise you. And I pray that you this week, through your word and through community and through prayer and through worship and through word and through play, humble our hearts to see you. Father, invite us to humble ourselves to respond to who you are throughout this series. Praise you for that. Pray this all in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out and connect with us or hear more about Grace, you can head to barberton.gracechurches.org for more information. We meet in person at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 629 Wesleyan Avenue in Barberton. Have a great day.